I'm going to go ahead and introduce our panel. Our first actual question is, who are you? Well, I'll tell you. My name is Cole Fakes. I work here doing adult education and college ministry. I have undergraduate degrees in math and philosophy, a master's in divinity, a master's in practical theology, and I'm working on a PhD in philosophy. So I'll introduce you our panel moving this direction. Somebody very special to me, Dr. Jim Baird, is a professor of Bible at Oklahoma Christian University, the director of the honors program there. He has a doctorate of philosophy from Oxford, and he is a minister at the Wilshire Church of Christ. The special thing to me to have him here tonight is he was my master's advisor. And so it's really nice to have him here. I'm really glad uh, that he could make it. Secondly is Ben Williams. He has degrees in astrophysics and divinity. Pretty good combo. He is the minister at the Glenpool Church of Christ. We're really thankful that he and his wife, Celine, drove down from Glenpool tonight to be with us. Thanks for being here, Ben. Next, we got two guys that I like pretty well. Uh, Carson Fakes, he has a degree in microbiology and molecular genetics. And he is in his third year at the Oklahoma College of Pharmacy. He's also my brother. I'm glad he's here. And a man who needs zero introduction around this place, uh, Terry Fakes. He has an undergrad and a graduate degree in mathematics. He is the executive and teaching pastor here at Crossings Community Church, the one that you probably know the best out of this group. Let's welcome him. Thanks for being here. I told him I brought him on not just for his technical knowledge, but for his sage wisdom, and I think he's going to deliver on that tonight. So <clears throat> we've got some really good questions here, but to set that up, I want to ask our panel, um, tell us a little bit about your background on these issues. Tell us a little bit about what you're passionate about when it comes to the relationship between faith and science. Guys, what do you think? Well step up if this is on. Uh, so I've taught for about 25 years at the university level and for about the last 20 years in the honors program we've had a dedicated class on the issues of faith and science and that's been a wonderful experience for me. I co-teach that with uh, usually with one of our physics professors. All of my degrees are as humanities as they come those are the kinds of questions I'm used to asking. I, I, I really don't have any training in the hard scientists, sciences, and so it's really been useful to have a, uh, somebody who did the exact opposite of that. All of his degrees are in the hard sciences. And we are, the type of class it is in the honors program, we argue with each other and we argue with the students. We browbeat each other and we browbeat the students. And, I have, it has really helped me to understand and to kind of reach a, I hope, a more mature point of view. I, I, I really liked the direction that Cole's talk took because that's kind of where I've come to, is to realize that science cannot be defined as the sum total of human knowledge. That science is a wonderful tool if you recognize its limitations, all of the bad problems come when you think every piece of knowledge has to somehow fit under the science umbrella. That's when we get into trouble. And that's helped me a lot with a lot of the big issues. 
Uh, my background in this, uh, a sage individual once told me that people get into apologetics because they have doubts, and that uh, probably describes me. As a teenager, I attended a seminar kind of like this one with a microbiologist, and I uh, thought that was interesting. I'd like to hear some more of that. I started going down that road, but quickly found out, and I'm sorry, that uh, biology was not for me. That first dissection in high school was the end of that, and decided <laughs> uh, there had to be another route, and so uh, went into physics and tried to angle my study in questions that came nearest to what I was interested in, in, in questions of, of origins and so forth. So from physics to astrophysics to cosmology, always kind of tilting in that direction because that's where my interest was. I think my hope was that I would eventually stumble onto that one incontrovertible fact that would just settle it and I would be able to wave it around and everyone would have to agree with me because I finally had found it. That ended in disappointment. It turns out that fact isn't to be found in the sciences in that way. But there was finally after that disappointment a lot of contentment when you realize a lot of the things you discussed in your talk that the history of science, the philosophy of science is deeply um, indebted to Christian faith and uh, not at all at odds with it. And that has led to kind of a new stage in, in my life where I went from astrophysics to divinity because <laughs> that was um, a place of, of renewed interest for me uh, to keep to the questions Cosmology climbed the mountain, but it kind of stopped at the top, and then hmm. from there um, we have to pick up different instruments. Wow. So that's been my story. Uh, well, my experience um, has taken place through a lot of years. I mean, I grew up in the church uh, for basically my entire life, and so when I went to college and wanted to study microbiology, it scared me a little bit because when I thought of microbiologists, I thought of people who weren't Christians and who were going to... Um, not relent until you uh, just denied any religious belief you had and you had to conform with that in order to do science in order to be a microbiologist um, or to go any further in that. And what I found was actually the opposite, that when I got there and when I started learning, it was amazing to me um, on a micro scale, on things that we can't see and that uh, some things that nobody has ever seen, you can still find the beauty of creation in it. And that's been a big theme for me is that even in the hard sciences, in the places where you would find, uh, you'd expect to find naturalism, atheism, things, uh, and people who are hostile toward Christianity, uh, there's actually a ton of beauty that I think speaks, speaks for itself when it comes to creation and when it comes to design. Uh, and it's something that's amazed me and made me want to learn more. Uh, and in college, I was able to take a trip to Cambridge, England, uh, through a program at Oklahoma State, where I got to even take a course on Charles Darwin and um, how he wrote the, on the origin of species, uh, what his theory was, sort of the context around that. Um, and that's, that's something that's always been interesting to me is as a Christian, how do you approach stuff like that? How do you approach evolution? How do you approach professors who are antagonistic toward what you believe, who think there is nothing more than what you can see in the natural world? Um, but I found that by getting into it, by learning more and more through microbiology, through pharmacy, how drugs work, um, you really see God's design for the universe. It's both consistent and beautiful at the same time. Uh, and so those are things that have reassured me and um, I think are also just amazing aspects of what I've been able to study so far. I know some people encounter uh, the beauty and the truth of God through music or nature. I, uh, a little more nerdly than that, I first encountered the beauty of God through 
studying the surfaces of n-dimensional spaces in mathematics, and I mean this sincerely, <laughs> the beauty that you see in the complexity of mathematics made me realize that if God is the author of truth, and if he is the author of beauty, then wherever we pursue truth, whether it's in the realm of astrophysics, in the expanse of the universe, whether it's in the quirky, complex world of quantum mechanics, whether it's in the complexity of the cell, if we will follow it to its end, we will find God there. And I'm very passionate that Christians not obstruct that search, but in fact, pursue that search because God is at the end of all truth and beauty. Mm. Thank you guys for that. We're probably revealing a little more than we wanted you to know about our family here. Pretty nerdy bunch. We got five people and five math degrees. So, <laughs> but uh, we've got a wide variety of questions here for you guys. So I'm just going to let you guys jump in and answer whatever you'd like. First and foremost, a lot of these questions are about the age of the earth. So I want to just ask a group question at the beginning that maybe kind of set some framework for this, and then we'll see if we need to be more specific than that. So I want to ask you guys, can you be a Christian and believe that the earth is, and the universe is 13 billion years old? Can you be a scientist and believe that the earth is 6,000 years old or 4,000 years old or whatever? Uh, talk to us a little bit about maybe those contours. Is it possible for either of these to come to a unified decision? Is it possible to be at odds over this in these two disciplines? Everybody's excited to answer that. So, <laughs> I, I am very sympathetic to the, uh, what's typically called the young earth creation cause. Uh, definitely where I kind of got my start and was a lot of interest in that. Um, I am not as deeply committed to that as I was at one point in my life, uh, but still very sympathetic to it. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 uh, in the wisdom literature of all places, imagine that, where it talks about God has made everything beautiful in its time and set eternity into man's heart, yet not so that he can see all things from beginning to end. And I think there is supposed to be a recognition of the limitations of human knowledge when it comes to uh, kind of the ends of the works of God. If you look at things that Christians quite often argue about, uh, eschatology and how it all ends and origins and how it all gets started, it seems to be the places where we reach the horizons of human knowledge and limitation. And I think it makes sense that we would have a bit of a fuss there. So while I still find myself fairly sympathetic to kind of a youngish earth, I'm not sympathetic to the people who do those sciences, but I'm sympathetic to the cause. Uh, <laughs> because of that, um, still I think the mistake in that camp has been consistently to put too much stock in the necessity of accepting that point of view. I read something the other day about if you don't take the 6,000-year view, the scheme of redemption falls and the gospel crumbles. I'm thinking maybe the atoning work of Christ will hold up better than that. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking. So I, I think that's probably been the greatest mistake of, of that camp is to invest too much in it rather than saying we have some convictions in this area and we'd like to, to have them. And that's, that's one thing. But to, yes, you can absolutely be a Christian and disagree with that point of view. I'd probably jump in the same way and say, yes, and can you be a Christian? Can you be a Christ follower? Can you have a high view of Scripture? In other words, can you believe that Scripture is true and believe that the earth is 10,000 
years or less in age or 13 billion years. I am not telling you that both of those views are correct. I'm simply saying that one could sincerely hold both of those views. I think the thing you can't hold, so moving on from that, where would my boundary marker be? Two places. Number one, I do not believe that you can be a Christian, a Christ follower, hold to the high uh, respect for the truth of Scripture and believe that we got here through random processes, which is a tenet of uh, Darwinian naturalism. So I think that's beyond the pale for me. The second thing I think we should be a little careful about is whether we think uh, Earth is 6,000 years old or 13 billion years old is trying to fit Genesis into current scientific theories. Yes. And I'll, I'll try to be, care, uh, be brief about this, but before Roger Penrose and Stephen Hawking, think late 50s, early 1960s, every reputable scientist thought that the universe was eternal. It had no beginning. Because of redshift and basically Penrose and Hawking's mathematics, they basically gave birth, I'm painting with a broad brush here, to the Big Bang Theory, saying, hey, wait a minute, this universe appears to have started somewhere. Okay? And since that time, Christians have tried to accommodate Genesis around the Big Bang Theory and the 13 billion year old Earth. Now, I'm not saying I have a problem with reading Genesis that way, I'm simply saying we're going the wrong direction. Because ever since that time, Stephen Hawking, this is very interesting. Uh, scientists, by the way, hated the Big Bang Theory because the Christians were gonna lap it up. Like, we told you, you know. But ever since that time, Hawking has been trying to undo that work. And so his current theory is called M-theory. It's basically a multiple universe theory. And it basically said, yes, our universe had a beginning, but it started from another universe. In other words, my question then is, how then will we read Genesis to accommodate M-theory? So where I would put my boundary is two places. It's not random. And secondly, we should let Genesis be what it wants to be and say what it wants to say and not feel any pressure to accommodate the scientific theory of the day. But can you believe the Earth is 6,000 years old? Can you believe it's 13 billion? and truly respect the scriptures and read it that way, I would agree that yes, yes we could. Boy, I really like that because, you know, one of the big things in my understanding is to recognize the limits of our knowledge. Um, science tells us a story of human beings being wrong again and again and again. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful pursuit. I do believe that it's the gift of God. I think it is given to us by God, but it's not perfect. And we, we, we replace theories with better theories. What a horrible thing it is if I base my faith and worse, the, base, uh, the faith of the people that I'm teaching on you know the hot theory today only to see that theory and all the faith that I tied to it shattered by the next journal of science when it comes out. And so to, to love science and to recognize it's an extremely powerful exploratory tool, but not to think that it's the end all and be all, to love scripture and to love what we believe scripture says without thinking that I've got it absolutely dialed in and locked in. Those are hard to do, but they are actually crucial for what I consider true Christian wisdom, true Christian humility. 
One thing I would, I would add for those looking for a resource on this topic, one of the important things that each one of them talked about is how do we determine where an us versus them question is, and how do we determine what's an intramural dispute among Christians? <laughs> and uh, so uh, naming a few criteria for what we can and can't compromise on, there's a great book called Controversy of the Ages by Ted Cable, and he argues that the age of the earth is actually an intramural dispute. It is not something that is a dividing line for Christians and non-Christians. He draws other lines, things like how the mechanism through which we've arrived here. He draws a line on the uniqueness of Adam and Eve. But the big question for us is what line should we draw around the gospel? And Ben, I think you hit that on the head. The, the atoning work of Christ is probably not something at risk with the old, old versus new earth, but something that we as Christians can, can disagree on. So let me go ahead and, and ask some of these questions to you guys, whoever wants to take it. Uh, so first question, and this is a good question, how did the freshwater fish survive the flood? So this just leads us into a big question when it comes to the relationship of, of faith and science. If only we had a biologist on the panel. I <laughs> think that's a biological question. <laughs> there are no fish in space, and so as an astronomer, yeah. <laughs> I have no opinion whatsoever. Oh, man. So okay. the, the flood is obviously at the center of a lot of these controversies, so feel free to talk broadly about that. One of the things is, was it a universal flood? Was it a local flood? What do we need to believe about this? But most importantly, what about, what the, about freshwater the freshwater fish? fish? <laughs> yeah, well, trout specifically. Yeah. Trout. Rainbow trout. Very Rainbow important. trout. Named yeah. Colorado. Um, yeah, I think you have to start speaking broadly about that, and with the fact that uh, we can't go back in time, so nobody actually knows the answer to these questions. And I think beyond this is, is a good hypothetical thought of, um, yeah, I mean, this question just exhibits that. For what we know today, how does that reconcile with the flood? Um, and I think the best answer that, that I can say for that is the world probably looked different then than it does now, and I don't know what it looked like. Like I said, we can't go back in time. Um, but I do know that, um, that the world then was in a different place than it is now, and that any sort of process that's happened from then to now has given us what we have. So um, I don't know if at that point maybe all fish were saltwater fish. I don't know. This probably isn't very helpful, but just from a broad perspective, um, I don't know that freshwater fish were necessarily around then. Well, or, well there's you a, raise a good point. Is would we say that the existence of freshwater fish therefore must disprove the flood? Yes. And that seems like a, a hard argument to make. I'd ask the panel, uh, if you don't mind me taking it just a little left turn, is do you think it's essential to understand the flood as a, quote, what am I call global event? I mean, like over the whole <laughs> earth? Or do you admit that the literature of the text, the uh, Hebrew text, could very well, in, in all seriousness, and I'm not trying to dodge the question, be talking about something more local than an entire global flood. I mean, I think that's an interesting question that sort of impacts this. I mean, what do the panelists think about that possibility? Is that within the realm of treating the biblical text with respect, or is that outside the realm of treating the text with respect? I actually think that it is, uh, you know, possible to read it that way. Uh, as a local a flood. I mean, certainly the whole world is used in a more local sense, and we can show examples of that in the Hebrew text and in, in the New Testament as well, the Greek text, uh, certainly. I think 
this is one of those issues where I want, I want to push myself and I want to push my students to read the Bible for what it's trying to say. And if I am in the modern mindset with all of these kinds of questions, freshwater fish versus saltwater fish, I am pretty sure that's not a question it's trying to answer when it tells us about the flood. And so it's gonna be very strained, whatever answer I come up with that, it's gonna be very strained for me uh, to, to say, yeah, this is definitely what the text says about that. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I, I want us to respect the text to go back to it and say, okay, but what was it really? Somebody that's reading this in the 900s, what would they have actually thought this meant? You know, what, what would they have said about this? Um, that's, an, that's, that's the way I kind of come at these questions. Mm -hmm. And so I may never know the answer to that until I get to heaven, you know, mm -hmm. because I, I don't think the text is giving us an answer to that that's very clear. I think that's a good point about just being careful with assumptions, what assumptions you draw. And so, um, like I said, basically, it's impossible to know exactly what the world was like um, at that point. And if there's potential that it wasn't a global flood, uh, then that could also impact it as well. So just being careful with what we see now and applying it to a text then, mm -hmm. uh, as Dr. Baird was saying, I think is important to just watch the assumptions we bring to it. Yeah, the other, the other thing I think is important to remember is we gotta remember what, what assumptions we're coming in with. So we have this right. question, and you step back and you think about it, you say, okay, we've got a flood that God tells a guy when it's never rained to build an ark, and he does, and he's living for 950 years, and then God shuts them in, and God protects them, and he brings them to rest, and he forgot about the freshwater fish. <laughs> you know, like, how could he possibly have forgotten about that? But Probably a fish tank. Would I be would my say this, though. One thing I'm pretty confident about, how many of you have ever read a Far Side comic? Okay, well, I read one one time, and I thought, you know, he's actually gotten into the realm of theology. It was Noah standing on the deck of the ark, and there was a lion there just looking really kind of chagrined and, unfortunately, a dead unicorn. And Noah said, well, great, there go the unicorns. Somebody locked the lions up. So I'm pretty sure that's why there are no unicorns anymore. Yeah, the assumptions we bring to this are important. I mean, that's, these are funny considerations, but sometimes we get so wrapped around the axe, we believe in a miraculous God and we get bogged down in the details. Another question, uh, not scientific in the sense that of the natural sciences, but a good question is, where does morality come from, according to a naturalist? And I would even add to that, is this a strong argument, a strong area to begin talking about the relationship between faith and science? Head's nodding. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, that second point is really actually crucial, I think. Uh, this is actually a very strong place to go to if you can do it in a loving way. Uh, naturalism uh, is a philosophy really just derived from the needs of the natural sciences. And it, tr it tries to see the entire universe and all of knowledge uh, in a way that would maximize the potential of the natural sciences. Well, what that means is it is terrible 
for dealing with everything that has to do uh, above the level of impersonal matter. It's terrible with dealing with personality. It's awful with dealing with morality. It's awful with dealing with is there a meaning or significance in life. You know, subatomic particles don't seem to have a meaning. Uh, and if that's all there is, then neither do we. Nothing has meaning. And so naturalism is a philosophy that does one job really well, and all the other jobs of a worldview it does awfully. And so if you can lead somebody gently and kindly, not like a jerk, but like a friend, if you can lead them gently and kindly to ask some of these questions, well, where does morality come from? How does that work? Uh, you actually may help them to realize what it is that's making them uneasy about their worldview if they're a true naturalist. I have more to say about that, but we'll that's, that's stop excellent. for now. And when I've occasionally taught adjunct uh, physics or uh, physical science, usually my first lecture is on the limitations of science, and this is the topic I talk about, mm. even in you know, a completely secular school setting, because there are Turns out there are humanities students on campus who might want to know. But yeah, there are limitations of science, you know, that there, there are still some of those humanities students. And uh, there are things that science can't approach. It doesn't mean they're not real, it's just not within the scope of that particular instrument uh, of, of human investigation. Uh, Plantiga, to whom I guess we're all indebted, uses the little parable of a man looking for his keys under a street light and he won't look anywhere else for his keys because, well, he can't see anywhere else. So they've got to be right here. And that's kind of what science does when it comes up against morality, that there's one place where science is able to look, and we just keep staring there in frustration, and you're not going to find what you're looking for in terms of morality. You can talk about, I think as the quote goes, you can talk about the ethical foundations of science, but you cannot talk about the scientific foundation of ethics. Yeah. That only goes one direction. <clears throat> And uh, that limitation is so important to a world so in love with its science. And I think beyond morality as well, you do see this some other places in science. And one that I thought of is with DNA. So we know DNA as our genetic material. Um, but when you really think about it, it's very difficult within a scientific setting and within a naturalistic worldview to get from DNA to consciousness, to get from DNA to rational thought and rationality. Um, so we know the process of how DNA works. You use DNA to get RNA to get protein, and protein serve functions, and, um, and it can be responsible for our bodies, but at what point does consciousness come into the picture? And it's very difficult to explain that just from DNA, and just from uh, chemicals, and then eventually proteins working together. Um, and so I think that's an example where science can be limited, because that points us beyond what science can tell us. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very difficult to put that all together basic with um, just using science in a naturalistic worldview. Yeah. Carson, I want to, before, before we leave that topic, there's another question on here about DNA uh, that I'd love for you to speak to. How does the okay. complexity of DNA point us towards a creator? So yeah, it's interesting with the DNA because it is, um, it is complex in the sense that what it leads to um, can explain a variety of different uh, tissues, organs, proteins, enzymes, but at the same time, it's not actually that complex. In our DNA, we use four bases. So you have um, G, C, A, and T, and in that sequence. So if you ever look at a DNA sequence, which I'm sure that's what you, know, you all find yourself doing on a, on a random Sunday evening, looking at some DNA sequences, I do it too. So um, when you look at it, 
it's pretty boring. Uh, just a bunch of G's, C's, A's, and T's all together. Um, and I think, once again, just focusing on what, where does science leave us? Um, and so where can we see a place that science can't explain everything, um, but instead we can look beyond science in that case? And so I think with, with DNA, the complexity is there in that it's responsible for uh, the creation of our bodies and the creation of um, material in the universe. But at the same time, when you boil it down, it isn't actually that complex. And so uh, to me, that's a situation where you can see a creator in that by using a template as simple as DNA uh, in a lot of different ways, being responsible for everything uh, living that we can see in the universe, um, I think is pretty cool that that ended up being the template for it. Mm. Absolutely. Guys, we've got some uh, technical questions here that I want to kind of rifle through. I don't know what a lot of these questions are asking. I'm just going to throw that out there. So you guys are going to have to take it from here. So you won't know if I answer them. So yeah, I won't know. They'll know, but I won't know. So it's between you and them at this point. So one of the questions is about genetics, and this is a great issue for us to talk about. The question is, mitochondrial Eve says that we can trace all DNA back to one lady. Question who impregnated her? So uh, who wants to talk about genetics? I guess I'll start on genetics. Um, I'll spoil it now. I don't have a great answer to that specific question. But, um, mitochondrial DNA is interesting uh, because in, in ways it's separate from cellular DNA. And so there's all sorts of theories about how mitochondrial DNA came to be, and was it you know, a bacteria that got converted into the mitochondria? Um, and just for reference as well, the mitochondria is responsible for creating energy that the cell can use to go through processes like DNA replication, like creating proteins. Um, but I, I will say that that is very mysterious, very cloudy, and so distilling it all the way back to uh, one person, I'm not familiar with the process they used to get that. Uh, I just know that we aren't even really sure of how the mitochondria got to be what it is today. So I'd approach it with a grain of salt uh, in the sense that it's very difficult to go all the way back with genetics. Um, it sounds simple, uh, but it's not. There's a lot that goes into that as well. It's not just the coding of genes as well. You have things like epigenetics, so the way that genetic material is modified as well. Uh, which is difficult to see looking back in time from this point. So um, I don't, can't speak necessarily to the validity of, validity of that. I would just say take it with a grain of salt, um, especially mitochondrial DNA, because that's a little more uncertain uh, of a topic. So. Let me jump in there. Just uh, It's not my area of uh, expertise, but it is an area of interest. I remember a Time magazine cover many years ago, I mean, that basically had a picture of a female ape and said, we found the common ancestor of the human race. And anybody remember what they named her? Lucy, exactly. Named her Lucy. However, I simply want to point out to you that if you read the literature today, that is not the common thought amongst uh, scientists, that there was a common ancestress, if you will, but that there were several pools of DNA that led to us. So I would kind of second what you said, is just take that with a grain of salt because scientific opinion about that has actually changed over the last 30 years as well. I think that's good science. I'm not bashing science. Science is what Cole said. Hypothesis, data, make a new hypothesis. So I wouldn't want to peg that to a common ancestress through science because I think science has changed its opinion a little bit. 
to, to chime in on that from an area where I am more comfortable, uh, I think that happens a lot in, okay, so in the business of science, it's important to get your latest, greatest discovery out as soon as possible before the grants are written. And so there is an urgency to get that newsworthy information out, even if you're not quite sure of it just yet. And it's, it's a problem that is increasingly um, the case, especially in the physical sciences. In the 19th century, a person with an upper, upper middle class income could do cutting edge physical science. Today, a fairly wealthy nation might be able to do cutting edge physical science. It's just a whole different ball game. So there's this pressure to put out the latest and greatest report very quickly. Um, just as an example, um, just a few years back, they did the research in Europe and discovered the faster than light neutrino. And they had uh, yeah. like 300,000 data points to support that claim and they published it and then retracted it because they had goofed up the experiment 300,000 times. I mean, it was, it was not a small mistake, and they took it back. <laughs> but what happens is that hits the headline, and then they plop it down in some minister's lap and say, now explain that. You know, so we have Christianity, which has been around a while, and subject to quite a lot of examination versus the latest headline. That may not even be around next week yeah. when it gets retracted. And so I think you touched on it, the, this compelling pressure to respond to every yes. new discovery with, ah, but I found that in Genesis chapter 2. This Hebrew word allows for mitochondrial whatever. And, and you don't have to do that, it turns out. Uh, take a breath and wait a second and let some of it sort itself out. And to kind of jump on that, that again is not a faith versus science. No. Good science should be changing. Mm -hmm. yeah. What, what infuriates me as a mathematician is science that's too dogmatic. Yes. Like, we have figured it out. Yeah. Good science admits, hey, wait a minute, this best describes the data as we know, as it, we know it, but we actually expect it to change. So it's not faith versus science. Science done well is very comfortable with faith. Absolutely. Another, a little bit more technical question is, can someone speak a little bit about the Christian perspective of the Higgs boson and the boson field theory? Anybody want to take that? A little. Um. <laughs> So the, there's two kind of paradigms of the physical sciences in, in the physical world, and there's uh, relativity-related theory and quantum-related theory, and they don't play well together. They, they don't mix. Uh, they each do very well what they do in their respective scale. If you want to talk about very massive, very fast type things, uh, relativity is the way to go. So for astronomy, Relativity is what we studied. Uh, we only had a passing interest in quantum theory because uh, we're, our stuff was too big for that. But uh, if you want things that are very tiny, uh, then quantum theory is the direction to go. But they don't overlap well. They don't play well together. The quantum side of that equation, or not of that equation, of that field, way of thinking of the universe had predicted a certain number of types of particles that were supposed to exist. They had a nice little chart and they were kind of ticking them off one by one, and the Higgs boson was the last one. When we check that off, we'll be done. And there was this great hope, not often expressed, and probably would have made some good articles if anybody had ever said it out loud, but there was this great hope that at, when they discovered that last piece of the chart, there'd be kind of a jagged edge of what we found there that would be the, the jumping off point to connect that to relativity, that 
it wasn't going to be neat and tidy. It's going to show us how these two things are finally going to make sense together. It's going to lead to the next set of questions. That's what we're looking for. What's the next question we ask to help yeah. get to the next set of information, the next set of experiments or theories? And it didn't. The most disappointing part of the discovery or the apparent discovery of the Higgs boson was that it was exactly what they thought it would be. And it left them with two separate paradigms with no clear way of, of even where to ask the next question to get them to match up. And so rather than make that the headline, because that would be bad for funding, uh, and maybe I'm a little cynical about funding, but it comes down to that. Uh, instead, the, the headline was, you know, the God particle. Well, we found the God particle. Let's, okay. let's make, that's more exciting. Let's talk that's about how we've defeated thing. religion rather than how we've exposed our own limitations. Uh, and so that became the headline. And most, most serious physicists wouldn't be caught dead talking about a God particle, would find that uh, very misleading, and yet that was the headline information mm -hmm. of, of, uh, of that discovery. So yeah. uh, to me, it was kind of a bait and switch of let's, Let's make this a problem for the religious guys rather than comment on the fact that we're stuck right where we were uh, yeah. a very long time ago. You know, one of the interesting themes here is the difference between headlines, the things that we're reading, yes. and the things that are actually being done on a serious scientific level. Not that those are always misleading, but sometimes the popular perception of what's going on in science and what's actually going on in science are very different things. And the reason I talk about funding is because it is yeah. kind of a market pressure. You've got mm -hmm. scientists who are trying to get grants, and then you have newspaper guys who are trying to sell you know, news, and there is just a lot of pressure from those two angles to get something out that is exciting. And something that says the Bible's bad or wrong or whatever is exciting. That, that'll sell some papers. That'll get some clicks on Facebook or whatever. Yeah. So, of course, we're going to lead with that, not science discovers something that proves very little. Right? That's a boring headline. I'm not going <laughs> to click on that. So we go with the other one. Yeah. yeah. David Berlinski once said, the number of subatomic particles is directly proportional to the amount of government funding available to study them. <laughs> yeah. Amen. Yes. There's some truth That's in that, impressive. but to address this more specifically, if you, I want you to think about, I'm going to give you a mathematician's point of view, think about quantum mechanics as forget the real world. Nobody knows if any of this is actually real. It's just very interesting mathematical modeling. You see certain data and then you mathematically model it. It may or may not be true. It may or may not match reality, but it fits a mathematical model. There is a huge pressure in science, all the way back to Einstein, who spent the rest of his life looking for a unified field theory. Exactly what he's talking about, a way to connect the macro relativity to the quantum mathematically. And that's yet still been stymied to try to find a connection there. And so in that sense, I think the Higgs boson was a bit of a disappointment just like you said, in that it didn't open up new questions and new connections. But that's science, just keep studying. That's a, it's a good thing, mm -hmm. keep pursuing it. We've got a lot of questions in here about certain camps within this, so maybe we'll run through a couple of those quickly. Um, one of the questions is, what do you consider the most compelling arguments for intelligent design in the origin of the universe? I would also add to that, any of you guys have any compelling arguments against intelligent design? So takes on intelligent design, buy into that movement or not? Well, I, I, 
I am a big fan uh, currently of the anthropic fine-tuning argument. Uh, this is one that if you read in the 1950s, you really wouldn't have run across. This is, this is actually an artifact of the, the mainstream scientific community coming to the conclusion there really was a beginning to the universe, and it begins in this very uh, weird situation of a singularity or a near singularity, the Big Bang. Uh, and it turns out, once you start trying to figure out, okay, to get the universe where it is today, what would be, have to be the characteristic of that singularity or near singularity? It turns out almost all the math you do, almost all the descriptions you could give would lead to a dead universe. I mean, when I say almost, I don't mean 99%. I mean, it is ridiculous, far beyond the bounds of what anyone would consider possible to get a life-friendly universe, a universe where life would even be a possibility. Uh, is beyond the reach of chance or luck. And uh, this is, so this is a new enough problem that people really don't know what they're doing about it, what to do about it. And you actually uh, uh, referenced uh, Stephen Hawking's own struggle with this issue. Uh, he's gone through three different, uh, I count, three different major positions on trying to deal with this particular issue. So it's really, really weird. It, it just gives the outright appearance of, yeah, somebody, and, and my favorite quote on this, uh, I'm probably going to butcher it, but Frederick Hoyle said, it looks like somebody's been monkeying with the laws of physics. I mean, it really <laughs> does. Uh, I mean, because it's just no other good explanation. So that's a very powerful, intelligent design uh, argument. It's not that there aren't answers to it, and there's the argument, can, the debates continue, but it is, it is really difficult, and it's kind of put naturalism on the defensive a little bit for the past several decades because it's so strong. The, yeah, the fine-tuning is kind of the physical science equivalent of the intelligent design argument with regards to uh, organic structures and things like that. And so that's what I'm, yeah, I'm definitely more familiar with. The, to give you an idea of, of kind of what he's describing, if you can, in, in the law of gravity, the, uh, there's a constant that's big G, and it's conveniently named the gravitational constant because we can remember that. And it has a very specific definition of what it has to be for a life-permitting universe. If you can imagine a radio dial that's divided into 10 parts, there's one through 10 on it, and you can turn it to any of those settings. And then in between one of those digits, one of those units, you subdivide it into 10 more subdivisions. And then take one of those and continue this process 60 times. If you change the gravitational constant by a 1 in 10 to the 60th, you now have a life-prohibitive universe. No life of any kind, probably no complex chemistry. The, the precision of that number, and that's not even the best one. Mm -hmm. There's now a whole table of dials. Yeah. Uh, there's one of them, and I forget. I should have brought my charts. Yeah, one of them is like 10, in, uh, 10 to the 10th to the 120, uh, some ridiculous number where if I told you what that number meant, well, you would laugh at me, right? I mean, it starts to be a silly number. Um, 10 to the 60th is a silly number. So the, the degree of accuracy and tuning of that kind of universe, the more you believe in kind of a Big Bang cosmological model, the more you need that level of precision in the universe to make it work. And that is just a, a frightening uh, 
result of, of that level of science. On a practical level, let me ask the microbiologist here. In your studies, would it make any difference if you believed in random mutations or intelligent design? And second question, if you believe in intelligent design, can you still get an A? It's <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> a great question. Uh, so as far as random mutations versus intelligent design goes, this is one where I think when you look at it, uh, pun intended, under a microscope, it's easier to see <laughs> random mutations sounding appealing. Uh, and so you can see that there are random mutations happening, but it takes a whole lot to say everything that we know in the universe is a cause of random mutations. That's a lot for me to believe. Uh, one is because random mutations are just that, they're random. Uh, and the idea behind it, behind us being here today, is that each mutation has given us in some way a more beneficial outcome. So genes have changed through these mutations um, because, and they've stuck around because they're beneficial. So everything that makes up the human body today is a result of a beneficial mutation. And it's the answer that, um, that you would get from somebody who holds a naturalistic worldview um, and ascribes to uh, Darwinian theory of evolution is, well, if you give it enough time, it could happen. Yeah. And, and that's not very appealing to me. So to answer the question, I, I can see why people would think that, um, but it, it's not appealing to me that just random mutations could account for all of the complexity that's in the world today, no matter how much time there is. Um, I don't know the actual probability of that. I don't know how you calculate it, uh, but I know there are people who, who have, and it's very improbable. Um, so I think if you're really trying to keep God out of the picture, if you really don't want there to be a creator, that's something you can latch onto pretty easily because we know that they exist. It's just beyond a stretch to me to say that that could account for all of the complexity in the world today. Uh, and yes, you can still get an A if you, <laughs> if you ascribe to intelligent design. Guys, I want to uh, maybe rapid fire through. We got a lot of questions. And uh, <clears throat> so let's try and get through a few of these here. Go ahead. Before we leave this one, could I, I want to say one more thing that's kind of a methodological issue here too as well. Um, some, I, I think in popular consciousness, the intelligent design movement uh, has almost become equated with, let's find a gap in science. Let's find something that science can't understand. And that's where we can put God. You know, God can do, and, and, and so I want to caution you against that approach. I think that, that is a, uh, that is approach that then starts dreading the next publication of mm -hmm. science because, oh man, I had this great argument for God and, oh crud, they came up with a theory that solves that, that closes that gap and now I got to find God someplace else. Mm. And it, and you get this feeling of, I'm, I'm dreading every time science makes a new discovery uh, because it's like my God's getting smaller. I, I'm having less and less places for him. Of course, the picture of God that the Bible's trying to tell us is a picture that would say almost the opposite. Uh, the more science works, the more the agency of human beings are being gifted by God to carry out their function on earth. Mm. 
that science is a gift of God to, to help us be God's image on earth, to, to keep and, uh, you know, conserve and manage what he's given to us, to exercise our dominion. That's all uh, part of why God has given us the gift of science. So every time science makes progress, we should rejoice in that. We, and we should take it very, very seriously and consider it precious. We don't have to think it's always true. Sometimes it's not. But we need to say, this is another gift God has given to us. Mm. A universe that's truly random is actually, as you pointed out, perfectly hostile to science. You can't have, I don't think, I think naturalism itself is incompatible with science at that level for the reasons that Cole pointed out in his speech. A, a universe that's truly chaotic and truly random, I can't do science in that universe. Hmm. This is a universe that is set up to make us able to do science. It's a gift of God. That's an amazing point. Uh, for those of you that are still wondering, intelligent design, another big um, school of thought on this is theistic evolution as maybe a middle ground. There's a gigantic volume that just came out about two weeks ago called Theistic Evolution, edited by a guy named Stephen Meyer, who is with the Discovery Institute. And it will cost you an arm and a leg. You could warm your family for a whole winter with this thing, but it is worth it. Um, essays from across the field critiquing the theistic evolution, talking about intelligent design, talking about young and old earth creationism. That's a good resource to have in mind. Um, <clears throat> so let's blow through a couple of these. So Ben... Uh, can remote galaxies, the distance to remote galaxies, be explained with a six to 10,000 uh, year old system? Not easily. I mean, not using uh, the methods of science that we're currently using. I mean, you would have to assume something out of the ordinary uh, produced that, which is not unreasonable. We believe God raised this man from the dead, that's pretty important to us. So it's, it's not out of the question that something without any kind of parallel or repetition took place, um, you know, but it wouldn't be a scientific answer. It would be, uh, I believe God did it this way. The order of the creation account itself kind of lends itself to the idea that you're not gonna get there from here. Uh, you start with light and then you get to day four and you get the stars that produce the light. Well, that's not the way we normally think of it. So mm -hmm. right off the bat, you say, okay, that's, that's a little odd, um, which either allows you to say, okay, somebody monkeyed with the physics, mm -hmm. uh, or maybe I wasn't supposed to read it that way to start with. I think mm -hmm. are the two options. But I, I would only add that if it is the intention of God to display his glory through the things that are made in the farthest reaches of the universe, then it would only be reasonable for him to make it in such a way that we could see it. So as part of the work of creation, however it was accomplished, he would have wanted those stars to be seen. Absolutely. Um, well, a couple of these questions are on morality in science, which is an interesting angle. So the first one is on the morality of space exploration. So is it something that we should endeavor to colonize Mars? Should we plan to have a colony uh, in space where we can live? And the second one is on cloning. So this week, the question reads, this week in the Wall Street Journal, Chinese scientists clone primates. Could you talk about science morality crossover in this sense? So on either of those topics, science and morality, where are some of the limits that we should draw as Christians, or should we draw any limits when it comes to what kind of science we should do and what kind of science we shouldn't? Hmm. 
Well, I'm all for exploring the stars because there are several people I'd like to send to Mars and uh, colonize there. So I think that's really a good solution. As far as cloning goes, I think, uh, first of all, the headlines, as everybody up here has pointed out, far exceed the capabilities of the science. Having said that, I think that anything that promotes life and, uh, for example, genetic research in order to cure diseases, that's a good thing. That's a God thing. Uh, I think that anything that is oppressive, for example, the idea of cloning human beings so we could harvest their organs so that you and I could live longer, but that, that clone would die, that's a, not a God thing. So I, know, I don't know. It would probably depend on the specific thing, but I think we can take the same principles of the sanctity of life and everyone yes. being imbued with the soul. And mm -hmm. so I think there's at least some broad markers, uh, boundary markers for us when we get into that. Those two examples, I think, kind of fall into two categories that actually illustrate well where those boundaries might be, even if I can't fully articulate it. Space exploration has to do with uh, discovery, filling and cultivating God's creation, which sounds like exactly what we're supposed to be doing. That's God glorifying. Uh, cloning, while I don't want to say this is always the case, often seems to come with the string attached of trying to circumvent um, either the story of humanity uh, or of the story of divinity and creation. It seems like, from a non-biology person, that it's often at the opposite end of, of that scale, not trying to bring glory to God, but to circumvent something uh, that we don't like about what he's done. And so, uh, without casting a specific judgment on cloning, because I just don't know enough about it, if it falls into that category of trying to circumvent God, then that would be a bad use of science. If there is some version of that that is God glorifying, you know, fine, but I, I haven't heard that articulated yet, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, the, one of the things that you said reminded me of the fact that, you know, the cultural mandate or our gift of science can be misused. Sure. None of us would disagree with that. Somebody texted in a, a response basically talking about, well, you know, how about the Tower of Babel? You know, that was a misapplication of the cultural mandate, a misapplication of the scientific breakthrough at that time, probably like as big as steel in modern history, of bitumen and mortar to be able to make buildings. And so there's, there's no question that we can misapply the cultural mandate to glorify ourselves. Now, is it possible that cloning falls into that category? Maybe it is. Maybe it is a modern-day example of Babel. Maybe it's not. But but one of the things we do need to be precise about is taking the things that we actually know scripturally about ethics and applying them to the things that we're doing in science. Another important issue in our day, and one of the things that's texted in here, is what about the rift in the science over the topic of climate change? What, as Christians, how should we begin to appropriate the climate change debate? I'm going to argue that climate change, as it's currently portrayed in the press, is a religious issue, not a scientific issue. When I say religious, I mean it's an article of faith, mm -hmm. because you rarely see the data actually being discussed. And the truth is, most of that data is a result of modeling. And any of you that know anything about computer models know that models pretty much spit out what you put into them and the way that you program them. I'm not taking a position for or against. I'm simply saying that I think the discussion around climate change and then the secondary question, if indeed there is climate change, what caused it, are actually not being discussed as scientifically. They're being discussed as do you believe it or do you not believe it? Oh, my goodness, that sounds like a religious test. 
So I would welcome scientific discussion of that question. I just don't think that's the way we typically, we typically get, we get it. Mm -hmm. Actually, the article I was referring to earlier on 538 is actually about climate change, not about faith and science from the classical standpoint. And what they're saying is, look, let's stop pretending like we can be objective about this. Let's get our values out in the open, and then we can discuss why certain theories contradict other certain theories with the same data set. So I think this is actually a problem for non-believers as well on the topic of climate change, even as monolithic as it appears in the, in the news. C.S. Lewis has a great little essay, uh, Eulogy of a Great Myth, where he's talking about evolution, but in there he has a line where he says, every age gets the science that it wants, hmm. which is powerfully true uh, that the, the storyline often precedes the science. Hmm. Guys, just a couple more questions here before we, before we go before 9 o'clock. One of the questions on here is, why do you think we see so much effort throughout the ages to question God? And I would even add to that question, why do you think it is that we're even having this discussion? You would think after this amount of time we would have figured this out, and you would think if God designed all of us and he was readily apparent in creation and you know, we know the gospel, why is it that even Christians are having this debate? How do we explain that? The fall. <laughs> you know, I'd actually turn that around a little. I, I respect that question, but I think if you think about it, and you're, say you're an atheist, let's say you're a militant atheist, why are you even talking about God? If God doesn't exist, if God isn't important, then why are we still arguing about it? I'm going to make the suggestion the fact that we're still arguing about God and talking about God is actually evidence there's something there. Absolutely. It reminds me of the, you know, Dinesh D'Souza is a Christian, was a Christian apologist, at least started out that way. And uh, he makes the argument, he says, you know, all these atheists are writing things called the God delusion. He's like, you don't see me publishing a book called the Unicorn Delusion. <laughs> it's not an issue for people who don't believe. It's an issue for people who believe. And yet seems uh, the whole community in some ways is wrapped around these issues. Uh, a practical question about Genesis, how would you explain the, uh, the ages in Genesis, the long life that's going on with the, the, the early characters in Genesis, and why we don't seem to live that long now? Is that a pharmaceutical question? <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> Turf it to our pharmacist. Yeah, I would have to say on that one, similar to the flood, I think it's, a, it's okay to assume the earth was a little bit different back then, so I'm going to stand with. Well, you know, one of the theories about that, and I'm just going to propose it as a theory, is that in the garden, death is not part of the original design, but through sin, death enters the world. And you've taught, Cole, eloquently, I think, saying that because of the fall, death is a door that we all must walk through now. And that in the garden, we were in some sense perfect. We were in some sense whole. And the fall began this process of corruption. Now, I'm not saying that I can necessarily substantiate this, but I know that one of the ideas is the farther you get away from the garden, the farther over time we get away from that wholeness and perfection. And so you see lifespans getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And I'm not saying that's the explanation, but it's one that I've heard and, and makes some sense to me. Do you all take 
to the idea that maybe God's day is not necessarily a human day, that a day in Genesis could be a million, a billion, however many years. Well, I mean, that's, that's the argument, I think, uh, the older version of the fight sort of between young earth and older earth is, well, maybe the days can be ages, and, and you can go through the Hebrew Bible and you can pick out places where day is used in Hebrew much the same way we use day. To, back in my day, we didn't have all these fancy iPhones. Uh, <laughs> You know, I mean, it's used obviously metaphorically to talk about other lengths of time. Um, and then there are counter arguments to that. Yeah, but not with a number in the Hebrew Bible and so forth. So the, the debate goes on and probably will go on long after I'm gone. Um, it, l let me shift the question like a good politician would do. Uh, I'd rather answer this question. Um, I get a little... I actually want us to take a step back when we use the when we use words like literal interpretation versus figurative interpretation. I think we think we know what that means, but if you if you just poke at that a little bit, you realize, oh man, I don't even know what a literal interpretation of Genesis is. Because uh, if I'm literal about Genesis. Uh, then I'm trying to actually see what it was saying to the people who first read it. Uh, and, and, if, and that doesn't mean trying to figure out how I fit in, uh, you know, what looks to be hundreds and thousands of years of sediment and uh, what looks to be fossils of extinct creatures, because they weren't asking those questions. Now, I can do it, by adding a bunch of ad hoc hypothesis. Well, God's, you know, he can do any miracle he wants, so he can put stuff in here and he can do these things. But that ceases to be very literal. And that's, that's not in the text. That's stuff I'm bringing to the text because I'm in this modern context with these other kinds of knowledge and I'm trying to reconcile that to the text. So that, that ceases to be very liter literal. Hmm. And so I want us to be careful because because we, that is intramural. That's what mm -hmm. we bash each other with within Christianity. You're not being, well, uh, we, yeah. we can afford to give each other a little more slack probably on some of those issues. Absolutely. Guys, to, to, to wrap this up and I think to summarize some of the remaining questions, I'd like for each of you guys to give some advice to somebody who's probably doing science or at least engaging scientifically that wants to do that, uh, not just as a person who happens to be a Christian, but Christianly doing science. And then secondly, give us a resource that's been helpful to you in all of this, whether that's a specific question or area or whether that's the broad topic of faith and science. So some advice and a resource. Cole and I had the good pleasure of both being students of Dr. Baird, so I'll steal from him before he can say it, and then you'll think I'm smart. Uh, one of the great mottos Dr. Baird taught us was, don't be a jerk for Jesus. <laughs> and if there's anything that students in a science context have to learn is that faith and conviction need not take the form of combativeness in every situation or maybe any situation. Uh, if you are in a science class, your goal is to soak up the knowledge available. 
You need to understand, even if it's perversely false, you need to understand the language, terminology, model, storyline uh, of what's being taught. You need to understand it better than they do so that you can then ask your questions of it. So rather than a combative posture to uh, science, when I hear something I don't like, I'll plug my ears. I'll admit the first couple of years in my astrophysics program, that was my approach. When they said something I didn't like, I kind of stopped listening. And I suspect I missed some things I might have liked to have known uh, by doing that. Instead, listen and understand it as well or better than they do, and then you get to ask your questions. And I think that's enormously important. And then replanting us. So I'm cheating because I'm using the reference you've already made. But um, where the conflict really lies is just this fantastic approach to the philosophical treatment of that. If I were to give maybe a second, uh, virtually anything on the history of science. One of the great benefits of my life is I did my uh, studies at University of Oklahoma, which has a world-class history of science department, one of the only like it out there. You can go, and they have first prints of Galileo documents, uh, things in the handwriting of the scientists up in their, their library, fantastic stuff. And when you study the history of science, you get this better view of what certainty looks like uh, through the ages. And we're always so certain until we're not. Yeah. There were actual letters being sent about at the end of the 1800s between physicists we're about to be out of work. We've almost discovered everything. Yeah. As soon as we find the luminescence, either, we'll have it all done. Which turned out it didn't exist, which is why it's not in your textbook. And they had to start over, and some guy named Einstein set us on a different direction. But the point is, they were absolutely certain that we were basically done at the end of the 1800s. The history of science is very illuminating to uh, both the faith in scientific figures and to the complete revolution that takes place in science every so often when that storyline gets changed. Mm. I think my advice would be, like we've discussed quite a bit here, is just understanding that there are limits to science. And um, so when you find one, it's natural to, as Cole talked about, um, have a theory at that point. Um, and so also to understand that you know, if you're going through college, uh, some sort of education, and you might have professors that are hostile toward Christianity, toward intelligent design, uh, understanding that the, what they believe takes faith too. And uh, I would argue quite a bit more faith than, than what believing intelligent design or, or creationism takes. So I think just keeping that perspective as you do it, and, and like has been said here before, it's not faith versus science. Uh, science is something to be embraced in its proper context. I think Cole did a really good job of, uh, of explaining that to us, that there is a context for science, but there's also more than science. And so don't be fooled by that, um, and that science is um, the bearer of all truth in our society, which I think something, is something people accept without really thinking much about yes. it. Um, as far as, as resources, um, of course the author just slipped out of my head, but Dar Darwin's Black Box is one that Michael is interesting. Michael Behe. Behe, that's right. Michael Behe. And he's a biochemist. And uh, that's just an interesting dive into the idea of irreducible complexity and some of the, the cellular processes and what we can learn on a microscopic level uh, about creation and these issues as well. So that's one that I might recommend, uh, at least for, for what I've been talking about today. It's the only biology book I own. If that's so. Well, there you go. That's, <laughs> that's quite an endorsement. So. That's awesome. 
Well, as far as advice, uh, I, would, I would say this. This is just my core commitment uh, to science is no matter how much science might zig or zag, no matter how much it might kick against the goads, to use a biblical phrase, and yeah. not want to go to God, the end of all pursuit of truth is God. If Amen. God is the author of truth and beauty, yes. that is all they will find at the end, and let's go hurry that process forward. As far as resources, switching to the moral side of this, uh, Tim Keller has written very well about relating to people on common moral ground. The reason for God, the meaning of God, particularly, is a more recent book. And basically what he argues there is he says, if you have friends, and this is true, because I have friends who uh, do not believe in God, but they do believe in justice. They do believe in fairness. They do believe that oppression is wrong. And it's very interesting to start the discussion with why do you think those things are wrong? Because you and I both agree and Keller's argument, and I think he's right on, is that the Christian has a far better reason to believe that that is the case. So I think uh, some of Keller's writing, the, the reason for God, the meaning of God, give us some common ground to talk about the morality of some of the things we all hold to be dear. Very good, yeah. Well, uh, I think the emphasis that's already been given repeatedly on, on, on recognizing that science is not the boundary of all human knowledge and truth, of realizing science has wonderful things to share, but there are things we can know beyond the boundaries of modern science, and there are things we all know. I mean, sometimes people will say, well, you realize there's no scientific evidence for God. That's actually a disputable claim, but even if it were true, the, the right comeback is to say, you know, there's no scientific evidence that murder is wrong or even slightly impolite because <laughs> morality is just not, that's, modern science is designed not to deal with those kinds of issues. It is limited, it is focused, it's really powerful for what it's focused on. And so to recognize those limitations, I think, is probably my best advice. And a couple of resources that I found helpful, they're older. Uh, Stephen Barr, uh, who's an astrophysicist at the University of Delaware, and a Catholic, has a book called Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. And I have found that to be very helpful and pretty accessible. So you can kind of march your way through that. And he, he basically makes the argument Stephen Barr, uh, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith, for those of you who are hurriedly scribbling, uh, he makes the argument that says the 20th century sort of turned the tables on those who claim science is opposed to God. He said there were five major changes in the 20th century that sort of now make it much, much, much uh, more of a God-friendly intellectual environment. So I like that one. That's a pretty good one. Uh, there's a less accessible book, it's a history and philosophy of science book uh, by a guy named Thomas Kuhn, it was done back in the 60s, called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. You've heard echoes of it your whole life, it's the book that gave us the term paradigm shift and various other terms like that. It's not very accessible, you got to kind of strap your big boy pants on to read it, but uh, it's, it's really a good picture of how science actually, human science actually functions. Uh, and so I like it, but uh, anyway.
All thank right. you. Well, guys, Dr. Jim Baird, Ben Williams, Carson Fakes, Terry Fakes, thank you so much for being here tonight with us. Thank you for being on our panel. Thanks. Thanks to you guys who are here, I would end this way. We as Christians, we're people of revelation. We believe that God has spoken to us through his son. And so we don't have to fear going into any arena, any science. We don't have to fear thinking any thought or laying down truth against truth and arbitrating because we believe that the, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this night. Lord, thank you for um, your word, but also your world. Lord, thank you for the ability that we have to investigate that in the minds you've given us. Lord, we pray that our investigations would lead us to a place where we worship you, we love you, we glorify you because of what you've done through your son, Jesus. We thank you for him, and it's through him we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.